it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. As we mentioned, we're in New York City, crime-riddled, absolutely. And with a mayor that still thinks preschoolers should be masked. Uh, Senator James Lankford in about 10 minutes, KRMG. The listeners will love that. And Senator Rick Scott uh, right after that. A lot going on. Legislators not only getting involved with happening in the war in Ukraine, uh, but also trying to fund the government and try to be responsible when it comes to drilling at home. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. New studies show an alarming drop in reading skills in young students throughout COVID. The studies show one-third of school kids are behind on reading benchmarks nationwide. According to Amplify, kindergartners at the highest risk for not learning to read rose 8% during the pandemic. COVID-19 slips into our past. The time is here to evaluate our actions. As warned by so many, the sacrifices made from massive masking, vaccination to shutdowns, all virtually useless, while the damage done evident. The continued masking of toddlers, cruelty. Number two. We expect to see a high headline uh, in head, headline inflation in tomorrow's February inflation data. A key reason, as you touched on, our energy prices. We've seen the price of gas increase, as I noted, 75 cents since the beginning of the year as Putin built up his military near Ukraine. Really? Blame Putin for the war? Yes. But for the historically high gas prices and inflation? No. I'm not buying it. Are you? We'll, make, we'll take on energy and have the Biden agenda and the left-wing green obsession has left us vulnerable to the world's worst actors. Number one. They want us to feel like animals because they blocked our cities because they don't want our, our, our people to get some food, water. Yesterday, for example, children, I don't know if you, if you know, the children in Mariupol was, mm-hmm. uh, the child was dead. The fight, the magnitude of the violence ramps up and the Russian brutality hits new lows. Blowing up a Maripol hospital and killing sick kids, it's more important than ever that Ukraine holds on and by doing so, wins. So you can hear President Zelensky's desperation in his voice and anger. He knows he's getting a lot of arms from the West. He knows it's came, come ridiculously late. He knows they're playing politics and are very concerned about escalating this war with Russia to be a war with NATO and Russia, which would be essentially another world war. I think it's good to do that, to be aware of it, but not at the cost of being overcautious at a time in which Ukrainians are dying by the dozen. And I'm not talking about the armed forces, camouflage against camouflage. I'm talking about pregnant women. I'm talking about elders, most of all kids. Here's President Zelensky about what he's seeing after a maternity hospital was bombed in Maripol. Cut one. They want us to feel like animals because they blocked our cities, the biggest cities 
in Ukraine and uh, they blocked and and uh, because they don't want our our people to get some food water yesterday for example children I don't know if you if you know the children in Mariupol was uh, the child was dead mm. yes you know that, that that is the idea of of this operation or or I don't know how, how is Putin telling about it so uh he has, he's opened up to the press. He's been a beacon of leadership. In fact, on One Nation this weekend, we're doing a, a special, at least one segment on leadership because he's been such a great example. And, yeah, he knows performance. He knows how to command an audience. I know he was trained. But he's also effective and genuine. We can always tell when someone's acting. He's not acting. This guy is actually standing up and picking up. And when you, when you read about him, he was from a gang-infested area. Uh, growing up, a tough neighborhood, but he was one of these guys who was always funny. He was always an entertainer, an entrepreneur, but he's got those tough roots, and that seems to be coming up. Today, uh, when I got up, I was seeing the after effects of a meeting between foreign secretaries, uh, Lavrov, as well as uh, Dmitry uh, Kubla of uh, Ukraine, the foreign minister there. No ceasefire was entered on, but of course, Lavrov coming out saying Nazis. Uh, you know, they're a Nazi-run country, and they uh, we gave them every opportunity not to have this conflict, but they balked at it, and the West is lying. Here is Dmitry Kubla about what took place in those talks. Cut six. I was ready to make all necessary calls right away to arrange a humanitarian corridor from Mariupol. I proposed it. My uh, proposal was not, uh, was not followed by... Uh, was not supported by Minister Lavrov. My impression is that Russia is uh, uh, not in a position at this point to establish a ceasefire. They seek uh, a surrender from Ukraine. But this is not what they are going to get. Yeah, uh, that is great. Uh, by holding on, you win. You're also showing that that great Russian military is not nearly as fearsome and ferocious and certainly not organized and technically advanced as we thought they were, as our intelligence led us to believe, which is why we heard from the administration, Ukraine's not going to last a couple of days, Zelensky's going to be killed, behind closed doors we're hearing that, and now he's thriving. The Ukrainians are fighting brilliantly, and the Russians aren't. But they are able to level entire cities Hospitals, schools, 34 hospitals, hundreds of schools, gotten rid of uh, the bombing shopping malls while we were on the air this morning on Fox and Friends. What makes you think, within reason, why wouldn't you give the Ukrainians everything they need? For example, these MiG fighter jets from the 1980s. Poland offered this a week ago, says we got 29 extra. As soon as we work it out, getting F-16 to replace them, we could do it. Then Poland, without telling anybody, put those 29 MiGs in the uh, Ramstein Air Base, which is run by us, but it's a NATO Air Base in Germany. And they said, well, we don't like the appearance of that. It makes us look bad, like we are giving Ukraine fighter jets. That's too provocative. It could expand the war. I just don't understand that line of thinking. We're sending stingers. We're sending javelins. We're putting tons of uh, small arms Armor, giving all the essentials to live and to fight. And you're not worried about that being provocative, but 1980s jets, that's a bridge too far? I don't buy it. John Kirby explaining why we won't do this. Cut four. 
What's the difference in providing javelins and stingers to the Ukrainians versus MiGs or fighter jets? Why is that more provocative from an intelligence perspective? Why is that seen as more provocative? Um, it seems like you're splitting hairs there. No, there's no splitting hairs, Jen. I think uh, we, we take seriously the intelligence community's assessments um, and their views uh, based on the information that uh, that they have available to them. Um, and it's their assessment, one in which the, the secretary uh, – concurs that uh, that the transfer of combat aircraft right now could be mistaken uh, by Mr. Putin and the Russians as an escalatory step. What are we so worried about? What are we so worried about? This is a lawless country who is carving up another country because they don't like their philosophy of government. That's it. They're never a threat to them, never worse threat to them. General Jack Keane is watching this from afar. Cut 11. I'm getting to think that Putin is really getting inside the head of some of our leaders in the administration here. I mean, the pattern has been it's been pretty profound, but I thought we were getting out of it. And by that, I mean, remember, back in March, they show up on the border of Ukraine, 70,000. A shipment is due to leave that month for Ukraine. Actually, it's President Trump's shipment. The Biden administration is in power for 90 days. What do we do? We delay it till August. They show up again in the fall after the Afghanistan debacle on the Ukraine's border with 150,000. Another shipment is due to go. What do we do? We delay it. And the reason for both of those delays is the fear that we will provoke them into attacking into Ukraine. And we have similar issues. We didn't give them the stingers, Jesse, until last week. Other NATO countries have been giving us them stingers for months. And I believe, on stated reason, we didn't want to provoke them. Incredible. They're dropping ther- thermobaric bombs that suck the oxygen out of you and blow you up from the inside. They're shooting at hospitals. And we're afraid to provide fighter jets to Ukrainian pilots. We could have got them in earlier. Maybe there would be no invasion. We could have got all these things in place, got some missile batteries there, like we just gave Poland. But once the war started, which we told everyone it was going to happen ahead of time, now all of a sudden it can't happen. We can't get in there. We're afraid that Russia will expand the war. Did you see Russia fight? They can't handle Ukraine. You think they're going to be effective, open up another front, especially against fighters like the Polish? When we come back, we're going to be joined by Senator James Lankford and then Senator Rick Scott. A lot to cover. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I want to be very clear. The United States and Poland are united in what we have done and are prepared to do to help Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. Full stop. In terms of the work that the United States has done thus far, uh, we have, as you know, given military humanitarian and security assistance, and that is an ongoing process. As Part of the joint presser about 90 minutes ago from Poland, the vice president there remarks were just very generic, but at least they were smooth. 
take anything at this point. And but when you say we're together, full stop. We're not on the MIG situation. We couldn't be more separate. There was no communication at all. And when she was asked that question, she didn't even do a uh, a finessed avoidance. She just answered a different question. Senator James Langford would never do anything like that. He's Homeland Security on the Homeland Security Committee, Energy and Natural Resources, and joins us now, Senator. Do you feel as though uh, we're on the same page with Poland? No, we're clearly not on the same page with Poland. When Poland says, hey, we don't want to transfer aircraft from us straight into Ukraine, their next-door neighbor, so we'll give it to the Americans, and the Americans can do the transfer. And literally, our State Department says we green light the Poles to be able to ship these planes over, do it. We're all with you. And then as soon as they hand it to us, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, we, we, we don't want to transfer these aircraft. Uh, it's just a bizarre 48-hour switch of American foreign policy that – while we in the polls, the United States and the polls, are trying to be able to work out who's going to turn over the aircraft, the Ukrainians are saying, give us the planes so we can defend ourselves. They're literally having their hospital shot while the vice president's arguing over who's going to get credit or who's going to show unity here. They just want the planes. What bothers me is we were telling them, well, you, we're not, right now we're not going to give you the planes, but we don't think you need them. Here's a quote. The Ukrainian Air Force currently possesses numerous mission-capable aircraft that are flying daily. Aircraft to the Ukrainian inventory is unlikely to change the effectiveness of their Air Force. Well, okay, enough. So now you're telling them what they need? Yeah. yeah, we're back to Zelensky just a couple of days ago speaking to all of us and saying, do a no-fly zone. If you want to do a no-fly zone, give us aircraft where we can defend ourselves. We're talking an enormous nation the size of Texas uh, that they're saying, okay, you've got enough planes to be able to cover the air while the Russians are flying relentlessly over them. If they say they need more aircraft, they need more aircraft, they're in the middle of a hot shooting war. We shouldn't say, uh, you've got 16, that's enough to cover your, your nation. Uh, we, we should give them what they need. We've given the singers, we've given the anti tank. Uh, we've given them small arms musician, uh, munitions. We've given them all these things. We need to also give them the aircraft to defend themselves. They, they said there were shooters in the hospital. That's how they tell, how they tell, uh, why they had to take it out. No one's buying that. Senator, how does this end? If we're not going to get involved directly, the Ukrainians will fight heroically, but we know that the Russians will just bury every city. There's no pu- public pressure to stop them. <clears throat> Yeah, this is the same thing the Russians have done. When they get bogged down in a war, they just use artillery and just destroy the city entirely and uh, just leave it to rubble, and they'll push everyone out. Uh, this is the same thing, by the way, they did in Syria uh, when they were working with Bashir Assad, uh, that they would just move in and just pummel cities and move them to rubble and then just keep moving on from there. So this is the Russian model. The key thing that we've got to do is continue to be able to equip them, continue to get supplies to the Ukrainians, continue to give them reinforcements, give support to the refugees uh, that are in Poland, that are in Romania, that are in Bulgaria, all these locations, to make sure that they're getting the support they need so the people that are fighting the Russians know their families are being taken care of and so they can step up and get able to fight the Russians and not worry about their own families. So I want you to hear this moment from the State of the Union address from the president. When we use taxpayers' dollars to rebuild America, we're going to do it by buying America. We'll buy America to make sure every, everything from the deck of an aircraft carrier to the steel on highway guardrails is made in America from beginning to end. All of it. All right. of it. So Donald Trump called. He's suing to get his speech back. But number two, uh, Senator, do you feel as though he means what he says? Do his actions reflect this? 
No, I've been pounding away on this. He, he really means buy American unless it's American oil and gas. Uh, and then he wants to buy from Venezuela. He wants to buy from Russia. He wants to buy from Iran. Uh, he's looking to try to keep his green score good here in America because they're so beholden to the environmental left. He's literally willing to go buy oil from other dictators around the world rather than just increase production here. Listen, we, we use a blend of types of oil. Some people don't know this. But when we blend oil, some of it's our light sweet that we produce a lot of in, o- in uh, Oklahoma and in Texas and all over the United States. But some of it's heavy crude that's produced more in Canada and Mexico and Russia and Saudi Arabia. So when that blend is out there, all of our refineries are looking for a blend of both. We can be North American energy independent, buy from Mexico, buy from Canada, but the vast majority be able to buy American light sweet crude and to be able to use that for our energy needs. We, we should not be dependent on Iran, and we certainly shouldn't say we're not going to buy it from Russia, so we're going to go buy it from Iran and Venezuela and said, that's ridiculous, and every American knows you don't just switch one dictator to the next dictator and say that's okay. Uh, we'll deal with the same consequences. Well, here's Jennifer Granholm when asked about gas prices in drilling more. Cut 23. Hi, Secretary Granholm. Sorry about that. Sorry, 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 sorry. Is there any talk about bringing Iran back to the table because of gas prices? They actually pushed the cameras away. Same thing with AOC. She walked away from a camera first time in her life. The Democrats don't know what to do with this. The left yeah. wing, like, she's a, she's a green maniac, Granholm, as is AOC, obviously. So they have no idea how to handle this. What, what's interesting is if you look at the Biden administration's own numbers of how much oil and gas will be used worldwide, all the way through 2050, they predict we're going to continue to have increasing demands for oil and gas. So while they're saying we're going to have more electric vehicles, we're going to take care of all this, when you look at their real numbers, when they actually get pushed to shove on the, on the Energy Information Agency, they'll tell you, no, we're going to continue to have increased needs for oil and gas. They're literally trying to be able to speak out of both sides of their mouth here and to be able to get away with it. Right now, our foreign policy is being run by environmental activists rather than people who really understand what is actually happening in the economy, what, what, is, what actually happens when you empower Putin and others. They use the money we send them to murder their neighbors. We do not. Uh, so if we're going to continue to need oil and gas, which the Biden administration, even their own numbers, says we will continue to need it for the foreseeable future, which is true, then let's continue to be able to produce it here rather than try to say I'm going to get green credits uh, from folks uh, where, who absolutely don't understand foreign policy and don't understand energy needs of Americans. Understood. Uh, Senator uh, James Langford, keep fighting. Oh, we will most definitely keep fighting. Brian, right. continue to pray for the people of Ukraine. Absolutely. Our gas, by the way, uh, is going to be $5 most places around the country. I've never seen that in my life. In America. I've seen it in Europe, but not in America. We come back to Rick Scott on the agenda for the Republicans and what Florida is doing with their law for kids. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Our outrage, which compels not only our security assistance, but our humanitarian assistance, is rooted in the fact that also we support the people of Ukraine who have shown extraordinary courage and skill in their willingness and, yes, ability to fight against Putin's war and Russia's aggression.
That is uh, the vice president speaking with the president uh, with a joint press conference with President Duda after their meeting. They took two questions each. And the big question was, which with the MiG fighters? And they didn't really answer it. Senator Rick Scott, his job is to turn the Senate Republican again. How he's doing on that, along with doing his job, as well as working at the Homeland Security and Armed Services Committee. Senator, welcome back. What is your response to the vice president? Are we doing everything we can? No, we're absolutely not. First off, I don't know why they don't have the MiGs. I mean, Poland has offered the MiGs. I don't know why the Biden administration is holding it up. It doesn't make any sense to me. On top of that, I don't know why we haven't passed the Ukraine aid uh, that they need. We, You know, Congress was on with President Zelensky last uh, weekend. He was very clear the things he needs. He needs a mix. Why the Biden administration is not getting that done. Number two is, why didn't we pass uh, the Ukraine aid on Saturday, on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday? Oh, the... uh, Schumer shut down the, the whole Senate yesterday, and, and he, what they're doing is they're holding this Ukraine uh, money hostage to a liberal spending bill. I mean, this is not the way to help an ally. It's not the way to run your government. Here's uh, the retired Air Force fighter pilot. This guy's not John Venable. You might know him. This is what he said about our decision not to be provocative and not and, and they're really concerned of getting the U.S. Russia in a direct war, forming uh, starting World War III. Here's John Venable, Cut Twelve. We could truck those airplanes across the border. We could actually move them into Ukraine without flying them. At least the parts and the uh, the munitions that go with them, without pro- provoking any type of armed conflict directly between NATO and Russia. And if I could remind the the viewers, uh, in in Vietnam. Russia provided every SA-2 and every MiG-21, MiG-17, MiG-19 that shot down over 1,700 American aircraft. That military aid came directly from Russia. And what we're doing right now doesn't even come close to comparing to that level. And their relationship that they had with Vietnam is not nearly as close as the one that we have with Ukraine. I mean, did you, do you buy the analogy? Absolutely. First, first off, you know, Putin has already said that the sanctions are an act of war. It's good. It's a, it's Putin's decision how much he he wants to escalate this. It's not it's not our decision how much we escalate this. Our job should be is to help an ally. Right, we we have a commitment uh, uh, to help them. We've said we're going to help them. Um, we ought to help them. I mean, they need to get the planes, they need the equipment. I don't get why Biden is so weak. I don't get why Schumer is heartless. I mean, Schumer has sat here all week when we knew we needed to do this aid uh, to Ukraine and won't do it. And it takes a day off and shuts down the whole Senate yesterday. And we're and it's not going to get done today. So I don't I don't get why they don't understand. A hospital got bombed yesterday. By Putin, I mean, women and children are dying. And what's Congress doing? We, we're, I mean, we're not doing our job. And what's Biden doing? He's not doing his job. And, and, and by the way, this I not making America uh, independent on oil and gas. What, who in their right mind thinks you as an individual, you as a family, you as a company, you as a state or country don't, don't want to be independent? We all do. Don't make us dependent. And by the way, Going down to Venezuela was just an affront to all the people in Florida from Venezuela, have family in Venezuela, have family that have left Venezuela. It's just an affront to be meeting with 
a dictator that, that's killing his own citizens, basically, through starving them to death. Here's uh, what Jen Psaki said about Venezuela. Cut 24. You all know that Venezuela is a large producer of oil, but in terms of any decisions or discussions or where that may go from here, I have no nothing to preview or predict for you on that front. But they can't produce anymore. Their whole infrastructure is falling apart. He's a, he's a dictator. He stole an election. I mean, there, there's a legitimate uh, president down there, Juan Guaido. Meet with Juan Guaido. Why, why would the Biden administration meet with somebody that is causing unrest in Colombia, uh, in, in his relationship with Russia, Iran, Hezbollah? I mean, who, this stuff just doesn't make any sense to a normal American. We don't, we don't, we don't want to buy, buy, uh, use oil from Texas or Alaska, but boy, if we can get it from Venezuela, somebody that's, that's killing their citizens by starving them to death, I stole the election, maybe we ought to do that. That makes no sense at all what the Biden administration is doing. Well, Senator, you know what the new theme is. Uh, with the reason why we have high inflation, the reason why we have high gas prices, Vladimir Putin. And they realize that it's been going up for a while it's because the market's responding to the buildup before the actual invasion itself. What's your reaction? No. I mean, look, inflation is caused by reckless government spending. So the, the Biden administration, the Democrats, they don't know anything they, they don't want to spend money on. And by the way, I'm on the budget committee. Right? Bernie Sanders is the chair. We, we now are, you know, there's a bill in front of us to spend $1.5 trillion. Did it go through the budget committee? I'm on the budget committee. Do we have a hearing? Do we know what, how it's going to impact inflation? Has the Congressional Budget Office told us how it's going to impact inflation? None of these things. And they're going to expect us to vote on it either today or tomorrow. And so, it, I mean, this is why we have inflation. Reckless government spending. We have to stop. When, when is, is 30 trillion? We've got $30 trillion at that. When are we going to stop when it's 35, when inflation is 10% a year, 15% a year? I mean, this is killing. This is so much. This is hurting our poorest families. I, I grew up in a family. Watched, my mom had to watch every penny when inflation goes up. I mean, it had a dramatic impact on her ability to put gas in the car, put food on the table. That's going on all across my state now because this just wasteful spending with no accountability. This new bill's got earmarks out the kazoo. It's, you know, it's just, there, there's always something good in every bill when you spend $1.5 trillion. But why are we wasting all this money and going to cause more inflation? Well, that's uh, one thing's interesting. I also know, Senator, that you have said in the past, recent past, and said, hey, when, if we take the majority, you're for a tax increase? Do you, do you want to, where would that money Oh, absolutely go? not. I mean, look, the, it's totally separate, all right, than anything I do to make sure we take back the majority. I just put it on my ideas, 11 steps. They're common sense, 128 ideas. And what I said is we all ought to have some skin in the game. It's pretty common sense. But look, I'm a tax cutter. I cut taxes 100 times in fees. I'll put, while I was governor, I'll put my record up against anybody. But here's what's wrong. We have billionaires not paying taxes. We've got people that can that can go to work today and they're saying, no, I just want some more government funding. I just, you know, can you give me some more of that, that free government money? That's not fair. They need to be in, you know, if, they, if they're, if they want that stuff, they gotta, they gotta pay for it. They gotta be part of this. Look, I get it. If you can't work, I get, I, I understand that, but 
you know, you've got, we all have to be, we can't turn this country around. We've got to get back to work. We can't let people take advantage of the system. These billionaires that don't pay taxes and this woke left that doesn't want to work. They just want us, all the hardworking Americans are paying property taxes and sales taxes and income taxes. Our retirees that are paid in the, all these programs. And then we have people saying, oh, you know, debt doesn't matter. You know, the inflation, who, oh gosh, that's somebody else's fault. No, we've got, even if it is, which is not, we got to solve it. Solve it. Stop wasting money. So do you feel as though uh, the Republicans are been clear enough about what they would do if they got the majority? Would it make your job easier as as uh, someone who's who's trying to get the Republicans to the majority back and whose job it is to do that if they were clear about what agenda they'd have? Brian, I'm a business guy. If you want somebody to invest in your company, you want somebody to come to work with you, you have a plan. If when I ran for governor of Florida, I had a plan. I had a plan to turn around the economy. Okay, we need a we need a plan for what we're going to do when we take the majority. Because when we take the majority, I want to get going. I want to say, hey, we wrote we wrote our plan. People voted on this plan. This is where we're going. That's what I believe. That's what I believe in. And that's what Americans want. They want. They want. What are you going to do? How are you going to change this? We know we we know the country's in deep trouble right now. So if we elect you, what are you going to do to fix it? That's what people want out of us. And so I put my ideas out there. You know, give me your ideas. You can go to rescueamerica.com and look look it up. Give me your ideas. You don't have to agree with all my ideas. If you have better ones, you know, I'll look at those. I I want to get something done. I came up here to turn this country around, rescue this country from the radical left that is just demolishing what we believe in. I mean, I mean, my plan is so controversial. I say, golly, we want our kids to say the Pledge of Allegiance, salute the flag, and and be taught that America is the greatest country ever. I mean, that's not controversial. Do we want to have a secure border? You better believe we want to have a secure border. Do we want to fund the police? Yeah, we want to fund the police. Those are the things I'm talking about. Let's have a plan. Say we are going to make this happen. We're going to take care. We're going to promote families. We're not going to let people divide us by race. That's not, that stuff's wrong. That is wrong. And so those are the ideas. I'm talking to people all across the country, but especially in my home state of Florida, this is what they want. They say, what are you going to do when you win? We're right. going to win this this November. We're going to kick the Democrats' butt. But when you win, what are you going to do? So the, what you don't have is a strong candidate yet in Arizona or a high-profile one or in New Hampshire, a high-profile one. And do you feel as though uh, Vermont, I don't know if you feel as though in play, some Republicans I hear do, do think they have a shot at it. So where do you stand on those three things? We are going to – we have every reason to get a majority back. We have – you know, Mark Kelly in Arizona, he ran as a moderate. No, he's Chuck Schumer. We, we, have, a, we have good people running in a the primary there. One of them is going is to win that primary. We're going to do everything we can to help him. I believe we can help him. I believe if you look at, if you look at New, New Hampshire, we should win there. We've got three good candidates. Uh, the, the Democrat sitting up there now is underwater in a fave unsafe, just like Mark Kelly is out in Arizona, because they don't represent their states. What they do, they, these Democrats come up here and they become part of the system, just spend money, and they don't worry about the, the things that, that matter. Inflation matters. Schools matter. Border security matters. These these things having a strong military, not a woke military, matters. And so that's what that's why we're going to win this year. We're going to get a majority. And then my goal is to make sure when we do, we say these are the things we're going to get done. Well, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, some people say uh, feels a little bit threatened by you. Is that true? I have a good work relationship with my colleagues here. I mean, look, 
there's people that don't don't want to put out a plan, and there, and I do. I mean, but the, we work well together, and just I mean, there's a difference. I mean, that's that's life. I mean, you know, I represent my state. I mean, I, I'm a. Everybody knew when when I got elected as, as senator, I said I'm I'm going to work on a plan. I'm going to work on turning this country around. It's what I believe in. I, I believe in term limits. I think we ought to have term limits. I think we ought to have term limits for government bureaucrats. I mean, that's what I believe in. I've always believed in that. Gotcha. Uh, Senator Rick Scott, uh, exciting time. Uh, we definitely need some decision makers, and we'd love to see a leader. Uh, you're doing it. Thanks so much. All right. See you, Brian. Bye-bye. Right. He ran a state twice, uh, two terms. And now he's uh, running, trying to run things in the Senate and see if they can get back to majority. That would certainly change things in this country. 12 minutes before the top of the hour. When we come back, I'll take your calls. one 408 7669. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you on a need to know basis because, man, do you need to know? It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Only if uh, the world will unite around Ukraine, around around Ukraine, they are not. They are still. It's still very slowly. It's still very slowly. But you can feel it only when you are here, because the people from Europe or USA, it's it's far from Ukraine. It's far from the heart of this tragedy, and and you you can't you, you you can't understand the details because you are not fighting here. And I understand why. And I don't want them to fight, but these countries can help, can unite. Uh, he just wants more, and, and I don't blame him. Uh, he, he wants some more help, and because the Russians are going to enlist the Syrians, they got the Chechnyans, who are technically Russian, but they're their own fighting group. And now they have this Wagner group or Wagner group that's coming out of Africa. They're just f- uh, stone-cold killers, and they're highly skilled. And then you have the Belarus, uh, Belarusians, their army's being told to go fight, even though only 11% of the population uh, side with Russia. The rest don't, but they have no choice. Zena, over listening online. Hey, Zena. Hello, hello, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. The name is Zena, Russian name. I'm from Russia originally, and I'm a teacher in New York. What I have to say is this. Biden has a straight line of communication with Putin that he probably uses on a daily basis. Can you imagine Roosevelt or Churchill having a straight line of communication with Hitler and seeking his approval on every move they're considering? Like, Herr Hitler, you're killing civilians. We're considering a no-fly zone. Hitler says, no. Well, sorry, we'll think of something else. How about we send some jets? Hitler says, no, I will consider this act of aggression. I I will start nuclear war. Oh, sorry, we won't do it. Well, I I have a suggestion for Biden on how to use this direct line with Putin. Today, he needs to say, Mr. Putin, you're bombing hospitals and maternity wards. We are declaring no-fly zone effective immediately. We are also closely monitoring all your nuclear weapon sites. If we see any indication of a real threat, we will use our nuclear arsenal preventively. You will be obliterated. That's the only thing they understand. Because every time there's acquiescence or there's caution, he looks at it as weakness, right? Yes. Absolutely true. Uh, history repeats himself. One more thing, Brian. I wrote an open letter to Steven Spielberg, and it gets some good buzz on, on Facebook, but it's not enough. I think it's a powerful letter. Your assistant, Peter Katerina, has the letter. 
All right. I look forward to that uh, letter uh, going public and see if Spielberg reacts because uh, he's very good at making movies. I'm not sure that he is going to react to this. But talking about the Jewish community, they've been told to evacuate Odessa because at any day there could be an amphibious landing uh, through the Navy because the Russians have a Navy, about six warships, parks on the outside, big Jewish community in the area. And once again, they're cautiously being displaced uh, because people feel as though they're going to lock in Kiev. And to lock in Kiev, you have to lock off the Black Sea. And to do that, you got to take the beach community of Odessa. Evidently, it will not be that hard because the Ukrainians have not really fortified to a great degree. Keep in mind, if you want to hear more of this coverage, and I know you do, tune in to One Nation. I'll be on. We've got a great roster guest at 8, and then another live show at 11. That'll be on Saturday night. We'll be going out back and forth to the Ukraine. We're going to have David Petraeus on amongst our guests. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Michael Waltz will be joining us, and we also have a few uh, surprises. Uh, uh, yeah, we have, um, as I mentioned, we do have, uh, we have uh, generals, and we, we're going to work effort to get you over in the war scene as well. So one uh, 866 If you want to write me, you're at work. Now you've got to go actually back to work. Go to BrianKillMe.com. Just click on comments. And keep in mind, too, uh, we have – now we have – uh, a way to get my books, go to briankillme.com and get the President and Freedom Fighter. Still a bestseller in many categories. Don't move. You listen to the Brian Kilme Show. News Radio Studios in New York City. Fresh off the set of Fox and Friends. It's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you live from New York City. Crime ridden as it is, but heard around the country and hopefully around the world. Um, and we're going to have a big hour. Uh, we're going to have David Ignatius at the bottom of the hour and Jennifer Griffin in a matter of moments. But first, this difference in providing javelins and stingers to the Ukrainians versus MiGs or fighter jets. Why is that more provocative from an intelligence perspective? Why is that seen as more provocative? Um, it seems like you're splitting hairs there. No, there's no splitting hairs, Jen. I think uh, we, we take seriously the intelligence community's assessments um, and their views uh, based on the information that the uh, that they have available to them. Um, and it's their assessment, one in which the, the secretary uh, concurs that uh, that the transfer of combat aircraft right now could be mistaken uh, by Mr. Putin and the Russians as an escalatory step. So they're not, as of now, they're not getting the MiGs, and it wasn't really addressed at the press conference with the vice president and president of uh, Poland today. Uh, Jennifer, um, great question. Were you happy with the answer? Well, it's interesting, Brian. I, I still think that it is a debate that is worth having as to uh, we have been extremely open about providing javelins, anti-tank missiles, stinger missiles, and we've even had congressional delegations on the border with where they're going across, and, and we've been very, very open about that. And then there's this hard line in terms of providing uh, MiG fighter jets. Let me, but I've, I've been doing a little, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and, and the, the, definitely what 
John Kirby said, has been reiterated to me that the U.S. intelligence suggests that Putin would see the insertion of warplanes, whether they're NATO warplanes. I mean, you're, you're really, uh, it's, if it's a MiG-29 from Poland, an Article 5 nation, then that's a NATO warplane. Uh, that seems to be a red line, they believe, and they are extremely concerned about provoking Putin to either expand the conflict into Poland or to use, um, use any of his nuclear weapons. So there's that. But, but what's more interesting to me is, does uh, Ukraine actually need these MiG-29s? And what I've learned is that many of these MiG-29s are pretty old. They are not necessarily well-maintained. They would require uh, some extra training on the ground for the Ukrainian Air Force. The Ukrainian Air Force still has the bulk of its Air Force. So they have several squadrons of their own MiGs that they are flying, and they are flying a, a, a few sorties each day. And the more significant weapon that they have that the U.S. has helped provide are air defense systems. They still, the Russians still don't have air superiority over, uh, over Ukraine, and they're too scared to fly their warplanes over Ukraine. So despite the outlier, and of course, those horrific images at the maternity hospital in Mariupol, which was a Russian airstrike, that, that for the most part, Russia is not using its warplanes. The other thing I've learned is the MiG-29, if it goes up against a Sukhoi, the, the uh, fourth generation planes that the Russians are flying, they're not going to win. And the Ukrainian pilots know that. So this is an emotional issue. It's an emotional issue for uh, President Zelensky and others who obviously would like NATO to be more involved. They'd like it. You know, they'd like uh, the airspace to be controlled by NATO. But NATO has, is walking a very fine line in terms of how not to expand this conflict and find itself in a war with nuclear Russia. So do you uh, do you feel as though putting a Patriot missile system in at this point, like we quickly put it in with Poland, would that be a bridge too far, too? No, because Patriot missile systems, remember what they are. They're defensive. They are designed to say to Putin, if you send any missiles towards Poland, it's to give Poland security. Sure. Poland right now, let's be clear, Poland is the tip of the spear. They are doing more than any other NATO country right now. They've had 1.2 million Ukrainians, uh, refugees. They've welcomed them there. They have allowed their... They have done more than any other NATO country. So Poland needs our complete respect right now. But it was the MIG issue is a bit of a red herring. It's a bit of a hot potato. Originally, the Poles wanted us to give them brand new F-16s, which, uh, frankly, we don't have an inventory to just, you know, from foreign military sales point of view and from retrofitting. They can't just be delivered overnight to Poland. So Poland wanted brand new F-16s for these old kind of poorly maintained MiG-29s. And then they were getting nervous that Russia had heard about the MiGs and might uh, target them, uh, Poland. And so they said, you take the MiGs, NATO, and we'll fly them to Ramstein, a U.S. base in Germany, and U.S. can take custody of them and deal with it. And the U.S. was blindsided by that. The Pentagon wasn't told about it by the Poles. Uh, the State Department wasn't told. The White House wasn't told. So that's how this all kind of got played out in public. I think it's now being sort of tamped down. There are many other weapon systems that are being much more effective on the battlefield that the U.S. and Poland are providing. That flow of weapons is very uh, is continuing and is very significant. This is a ground war. It's not an air war right now. And and the the it might again the symbol of sending right. MIGs in 
feels good, but it has no military effect. I'm sorry to say, from based on uh, my understanding of what, what the way the fight is going right now in Ukraine. And I know that's hard to understand when you see those horrible images of civilians being killed. Conventional wisdom is the Russians are frustrated. Does the Pentagon feel the Russians are frustrated by by the way things are going? Absolutely. In fact, um, there's a lot that we can't report because, you know, I think there's a general sense among NATO leaders that they don't want to uh, humiliate the Russian military, which is frankly doing a pretty good job of humiliating itself on the battlefield. Um, there are stories that would make your hair stand up about the way the Russian military has fallen apart uh, as they've tried to take some of these cities. They've gotten completely bogged down. Now they still have a massive amount of firepower, and they're going to destroy uh, those civilian population centers the way they did in Grozny, the way they did in Aleppo. They have no uh, concern for civilian human lives, and that's what it, they're very worried right now. Putin is going to escalate this because he has been so frustrated with how poorly his military has performed. I mean, you literally have a tank column that was heading towards Kiev that ran out of gas for five days. You, they have intercepted conversations between not only Russian soldiers, but other uh, indicators that the Russians on the ground who are facing incredible uh, attacks and uh, surprise ambushes by the Ukrainian military armed with those those in-law and javelin missiles that the U.S. has been flowing in, 17,000 missiles the U.S. has, has uh, flowed in in the last couple of weeks to the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian military was ready for them. They have so many ambushes set up. And what is very clear is that the Russians can't even establish air superiority. They missed the, they tried to kill all of the air defenses on the first night and they missed. And so now they don't, they can't fly their warplanes over Ukraine. And then you have logistical and supply issues. You have bad morale. You have young conscripts who didn't know they were being sent in uh, what this war was even about. Uh, the morale is bad. And, and they're taking huge losses. I learned last night from a senior uh, U.S. official that their estimate, and this is on the medium-sized end, it could be much higher, is that the Russians have lost about 5,000 troops on the ground killed to uh, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, resistance. That's a huge number. That's approaching kind of Iwo Jima-style numbers. Um, this, is, this is not going as planned for for Putin, and he's going to bleed out there. He's going to do a lot of damage, and he's going to kill a lot of civilians, and it's a humanitarian disaster. But the Russian military is looking like a joke right now. Wow. Uh, Jen, I know you have to run to a uh, presser right now, right? The Pentagon briefing? Yes, thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Uh, Tanya, listen on WVMT in Vermont. Hey, Tanya. Hey, Brian. Love your show. Thank you. Um, she just kind of answered my question about how the – United States gets to say, oh, we don't want MiG-29s given to to Ukraine. And her her explanation kind of answered that for me. But um, if if Putin is – if they're concerned about Putin feeling that would be an aggressive move, what are we exactly calling what he is doing? I mean, are they going to wait until he attacks a NATO country and then all of a sudden everybody's going to react to it? And, we, yeah, we would have to. And my hope is there'll be time to react because they have this Collingrad tunnel corridor, I should say, that it's all it's a huge weapons depot full of armament and tanks and planes 
that they own in the middle of these Baltic areas, and they could sit there and say, we're going for Estonia, we're going for Latvia, right next to Latvia, and before we could even act, they're so close, they'd be in. And then it's a world war. So it's a world war. So, uh, you know, I understand if, if they say their Air Force is, they said is worthy and doesn't need any extras, someone should tell the president, because President Zelensky doesn't feel that way. Tanya, thank you. Appreciate you waiting. We'll get to your calls uh, in just a moment. Bottom of the hour, one of the most uh, tapped in people in the world uh, to what's going on defensively and foreign relations. You know, Lavrov met with his counterpart, the foreign secretary of Ukraine in Turkey about five hours ago. You'll hear some of those statements. They're off the wall, but that's typical of Sergei Lavrov of Russia. We'll do that and take your calls next. You listen to the Brian Kilme Show. So glad you're here. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Putin is evil, and the administration is constantly wrong about who he is and what motivates him, and they act like lots of lawyerly distinctions are what he's paying attention to. That's not the right line. It is clearly the case that Putin wants to be perceived as a madman. The one thing we know about him is he's evil. You could think he's crazy, you could think he's a genius, but he wants to be thought of as a nut job who will use nukes at the drop of a hat. Senator Ben Sass talking yesterday on Special Report. Is that indeed the case? I think the biggest mystery of this is... Is Vladimir Putin in over his head? Did he get bad intelligence? Is he truly isolated? We don't know the direct answer, but if anyone in America might have a, an educated opinion, would be my next guest, David Ignatius, columnist for The Washington Post. David, w- welcome back. Okay, well, actually, it's going to be at the next segment. Uh, but that was Ben Sass, of course, uh, weighing in. Now, Ben Sass is, getting, is weighing in for a few reasons. Number one, one of his area of expertise is foreign policy. But he's been such an adversary to Donald Trump, Republicans haven't been putting him on or giving him whole profile positions. And when he is speaking up, it's taking on Trump. So it was really counterproductive to putting together anybody's agenda. So for the most part, he kept his powder dry. But now he's seeing an opening. And without Trump on the landscape, I think that you're going to hear a lot more from him. In fact, here's more from that interview, Cut 16. Has the administration screwed this up? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, no, maybe to everything. What are they for? Like, you, you listen to Secretary Blinken, and there's a process to a process to have a meeting, and maybe we'll green light it, but no, we won't. That's not the right priority. There's a frickin' war going on, and it's really tough to get the administration to be for anything. This is not leading from behind. This is just not leading, period. And, and what you have, too, even when it came to getting off Russian gas— 45 days is going to take place. No problem with that. We all know behind the scenes it was the House that was going to pass a measure, the Senate a similar measure, and they're led by Democrats. Republicans were on board. And before that happened, quickly the president came out, calls a press conference for the next morning and says, I'm going to ban us. Uh, I'm going to ban Russian oil and gas from our shores in 45 days. So that's not really leading. And going over for the Iranian situation, how ironic is this? We, we were dealing with Iran for the past five years with China and Russia at the table. And we were taking the lead on an Iranian deal under uh, when John Kerry was Secretary of State. And it was such a bad deal, the key Democrats didn't even go for it. So t- uh, Donald Trump famously ripped it up and said, maximum pressure from here on in. Now to get back in, we're not allowed in the room, no representative. And guess who's leading it? Russia. Now Russia's saying, I'm not really going to sign on to this because, number one, it helps America. 
And number two, I want some concessions. Sergey Lavrov is saying, I want all those, all my funds unfrozen. I want to be able to travel and get my visa stamped. I want, the, uh, I want some of my oligarchs loosened up. So now the Russians are making demands on us in order for us to get a deal with Iran. Because they're not under threat from Iran. We're the ones under threat from Iran. So thankfully, our bad relationship with Russia is helping us stay out of a bad deal with Iran. The whole thing is confusing, even to Molly Hennenberg, Hemingway, who weighed in earlier uh, yesterday on Special Report, talking about domestics. You know, no one's, no one's not for Ukraine. But what exactly is our objective and how best can we help without starting another world war? Please let me know. Cut 17. The reaction of the Biden administration has been confusing. Doesn't seem that they have a coherent strategy. They and NATO have been all over the place on uh, providing aid. And this is a really bad situation brought on in part by that weakness and confusing messaging of the Biden administration. We should be having calm and sober minds seeking to end the conflict and end this war in Ukraine caused by Putin, not expand it to other countries and not make it so that the burden of what Putin has done is borne by the American middle class, crushing them with some of these unwise energy decisions that have come out of the Biden administration. No kidding. I mean, for, for the most part, Stephen Colbert, who says, I'll get an electric car and pay more money, hasn't had to worry about money. Bill, what's on WABC in Brooklyn? Hey, Bill. Hey, Bill and Brian. What's hey, on your mind? Brian, uh, the, the Biden administration has done nothing but embolden uh, Putin by the pipeline through Europe and by buying oil from him. But why are we t- showing our hand with what we're afraid of. We're afraid of nuclear war. It only shows weakness on our part. These things shouldn't be discussed so openly uh, with the press that, uh, to tell Putin what our fears and attitudes are. You don't hear him saying he's afraid of nuclear war. I think he's afraid of nuclear war unless he's suicidal. But I think we're just given too much information, emboldening Russia uh, more and more, and showing our hand of how the Americans feel. Sure, we're afraid of, of nuclear war, but we can't tell him that. Uh, you, you, you're emboldening him more, and China's watching this. Believe me, they're watching our reaction to this because they're next. They're going to see how yeah. we react, and they're going to know what they can get away from with hey, and what hey, we're afraid of. Hey, Bill, I don't know if you heard at the top of the show, but I agree. Everything I hear is exactly what Jennifer Griffin's saying. The Russians are embarrassing themselves on the battlefield, and they're having such a hard time. I actually believe it's going to make China more cautious. Number one, about their relationship, Russia's a pariah nation. I mean, I've never seen the world galvanized against anybody, including Saddam Hussein and Ayatollah Khomeini, like they are against Vladimir Putin right now. I don't think that's going to change. So do you want to, as China, be their only friend and be associated with that pariah nation when you really have to thrive on international trade and relationships with various capitals? I think they're going to have to recalculate. But you're right. Stop telling everybody what you're afraid of because Vladimir Putin looks at that as weakness. Jeff, listen on WTBO in Orlando. Hey, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Just a couple quotes from 2020, the uh, executive order that Joe Biden signed, and he wants to blame Putin for high gas prices. Number one, Biden calls climate change the number one issue facing humanity. Go tell that to the Ukrainians right now. (laughs) Number two, review and reset oil gas leasing programs. And the center of this EO was the – to make our national security and foreign policy 
tied to climate change. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. That's what America elected. Uh, and he said it. I mean, this is not a secret thing. I mean, uh, the defund the police. Now he's uh, pro-police. Now he's pro-made in America. Uh, that was what Donald Trump was saying. But when it came to oil and gas, there's no secret. Now he's trying to walk that back. But we had the tapes. You have the quotes. When we come back to this next half hour, I'll play the montage. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I was ready to make all necessary calls right away to arrange a humanitarian corridor from Mariupol. I proposed it. My uh, proposal was not uh, was not followed by uh, was not supported by Minister Lavrov. My impression is that Russia is. not in a position at this point to establish a ceasefire. They seek uh, a surrender from Ukraine. But this is not what they are going to get. So that was Dmitry Kulyaba. He is the foreign, sec- foreign minister of Ukraine, and he met with uh, Sergei Lavrov in Turkey today, and that was just a few hours ago. Uh, so no progress and some farcical comments by Sergei Lavrov not even admitting that the that the Russians were uh, uh, invaded uh, in, invaded uh, uh, Ukraine, and on top of that, not even admitting uh, backing up that statement that Ukraine is run by Nazis, which the whole world knows is not true. Uh, especially uh, David Ignatius, columnist for the Washington Post, and has tapped into as much as anyone on foreign policy and uh, and defense. Uh, welcome back, Dave. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to join you, Brian, as always. So, um, David, first off, how do you think this is going for the Russians? Terribly. I think this has been a disaster. They miscalculated uh, how they would be received in Ukraine. They miscalculated the extent to which NATO would be unified in response. Uh, Most important, they miscalculated uh, the performance of their own army, that they've done much worse than they expected. And they miscalculated the ability of the Ukrainians to organize solid military tactics to harass and resist them. So, David, you know what's pretty amazing? He says the guy, this guy Vladimir Putin, is a is an intelligence officer, KGB officer. You would think, at the very least, he would do a poll in Kiev and other places, even um, Kharkiv, which is I hear mostly Russian speaking, to find out what the view of Russia was, so how you would be greeted. It doesn't even look like the, he's given 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 the straight answer or made the effort to do that. You know, as we say in my business, he's been reading his own clips. Uh, he has been writing his own uh, account of what he thinks this uh, relationship between Ukraine and Russia is all about, and he didn't bother to check with the Ukrainians. If There has been polling, detailed polling, over the last eight years since Russia invaded eastern Ukraine. Ukrainians have gotten more and more angry, and if he needed any proof of how unified and angry they are, he's getting it on the battlefield or the soldiers are. What else could we be doing? Uh, as a country so, and as NATO. So, uh, Brian, I, you know, I had a, a chance to travel with uh, General Milley, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for the last five days, five days uh, beginning last uh, Thursday in Europe, uh, was on the Ukrainian border, and was able to see the uh, 
process by which we are supplying uh, weapons, I mean Javelin anti-tank weapons, best best available, uh, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, uh, t- uh, to the Ukrainians. They're being flown in in wide-body jets. Fourteen jets a day are landing uh, at the location that I was, and the stuff is then moving quickly into Ukraine. So uh, your listeners should realize that we are mounting a significant effort to help these brave people uh, re- resist with with the weapons that are actually working on the battlefield. So, uh, you know, what else can we do? We can we can stand with them. I think it's important for people to uh, avoid things that look like they make sense, but the more you think about it, probably don't. In my book, that includes the idea of giving them uh, MIG jets. They've got MIGs on the ground now that they're not able to use. What What's working for them, Brian, is anti-aircraft weapons and anti-tank weapons because they're just using them um, super powerfully. They're taking helicopters out of the sky. They're taking tanks off the battlefield. They watch the social media videos. You, every one of your viewers can see it. So we need to, I, I think we need to help them do that more, better, more aggressively. Do you, with the way they're just pounding cities and leveling cities almost like it's 1940 and what we did to Berlin where we couldn't care less who we killed were in an all-out world war, and now we're much more surgical in our approach, and we do things like taking out a hospital. There'll be massive investigations and outrage from within our borders. That's not happening. From what you see, can Ukraine, despite all their heart and the weapons we give them, can they actually sustain a barrage that lasts weeks and even a month? Well, they're pretty dug in. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a nightmare to think about. Uh, I mean, <laughs> There's no question that this indiscriminate bombing of civilians, uh, I'm sure you and your viewers have seen this latest uh, footage of the attack on a maternity hospital. I mean, you see pregnant women, women, women either giving birth or about to being carted out while the bombs come down on their hospital. I mean, it's just it's appalling. Uh, and um, these are war crimes. Uh, there, there's no question about that. These will be taken. They will be taken to the to the court that adjudicates war crimes in The Hague. Uh, when I traveled uh, around around you, I saw signs in Warsaw, Poland, that had a kind of face of, of Putin like a wanted poster, and it said wanted for war crimes. I saw when I was in Lithuania in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, I saw a huge banner across the top of a skyscraper saying, Mr. Putin, you have a date in The Hague, which is where this court meets. So in Europe, I mean, people... I just want to stress that people are just aflame. They're just so angry. I've never seen Europeans. Sometimes Europeans kind of sit on their sit on their heels, and not now. They 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 they, they take this seriously. I hope I hope your listeners in America take it seriously too. Uh, but in, in Europe, there's just a real passion to support Ukraine in every way they can. Right, uh, and I I see that. I've never really seen it like that in my lifetime. Let me ask you something: How insulated is Vladimir Putin? I have different theories of people who knew him then or know of him, but I don't know people who are on the inside and now on the outside. What do our intelligence apparatus feel about his state of mind and his ability to understand the reality of the battlefield? Our intelligence assessments are, are that he is isolated. He has been since COVID began. He's, he's really paranoid. He doesn't see people. He's narrowed his circle of advisors really to three key advisors who are all super hard line like him who reinforce his uh, as i said earlier his incorrect views of, of of how this battle is evolving people who would give him a more realistic assessment seem to be on the outs um even his own uh, 
external intelligence chief, uh, Sergei Narishkin, he'd be humiliated the other day uh, in a meeting that was televised. So he, he is isolated. That said, I, I think the assessment that our government would make, and I've heard this from two other governments, is that uh, he, he is rational. He's still a rational actor. He's not nuts. Um, he has ex- you know, extreme goals, and his he's using Putin-like bullying thug tactics to try to get them, but, but he's not a crazy man. So uh, in, in theory, there's a point at which, you know, for every commander, the, the cost outweighs any conceivable benefit. He's getting near that point. I mean, the sanctions, i got to say, the sanctions that Biden administration put together with the Europeans, they are going to crush the Russian economy. I mean, th- this is for real. I've never seen anything like it. So what people have pointed out, some of the Russian parliament members, there's only seven of 300 banks that have been sanctioned, that we could be doing more and make that move to sanction the energy sector, the, the banks that finance it. Um, is that something that they'll put in gradually? Have you talked to people that also said, you know, why not just go all the way? Because every day you, matters. Yeah. So, I mean, you want to leave some ammo in your in your pistol so, you know, you don't, don't shoot everything in the, the first day of battle. Um, so I, there are some additional sanctions. The... Um, the key banks that are closest to Putin are, are basically shut down. Uh, in particular, Spurbank, which is which is Sper Bank, which is a key Kremlin uh, tool that, that that we've gone after aggressively. The, the most amazing thing, Brian, that we managed to do without any leaks. Like I've never seen it like this. We got every major international central bank to agree on a program to basically cut the Russian central bank off from any ability to finance its debts. They had been counting. They, they had stashed away about six hundred and fifty million billion dollars to get through this, right? And they knew they knew they were going to invade. They got they had this kind of rainy day fund, and they were counting on that as their as their as their you know safety net. And we have found a way essentially to prevent them from using that because they hold those assets in non-ruble other other currencies and they can't they can't they can't use it. So that's that's the biggest thing we've done because that's that's the money they were counting on. I think Biden was right, although it'll, it'll push prices up at the pump. Um, you know, but he was right to say we're not going to buy any more Russian uh, Russian oil and gas. It's easy for us because we don't buy that much. Um, it's much harder for the Europeans to do that, and we have to be careful. I mean, you don't want a situation where there literally just isn't enough energy to keep Europe going. That'd be bad. Because they have threatened uh, to shut it off themselves. Russia has. They have. Uh, you know, I mean. If you if you th- think about this as a crisis that's not going to end tomorrow, next week, next month, I, I think um, there is no way that Putin can win it. If 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 the world holds together, if we had political unity in the United States, there's no way. The only the only way uh, he can win is if we start shooting ourselves in the foot. But but uh, on on the current course, if we hold steady. Um, it isn't going to work. Along the way, there's going to be terrible suffering for the Ukrainian people. I mean, that's that's the problem, is this long-run strategy that in the end will defeat Putin is going to exact an enormous toll from those folks. And our hearts will bleed. We'll want to, you know, every day we'll want to send, you know, send forces across the border. But, you know, we also don't want a nuclear war that would affect uh, the, the whole planet. So it's it's going to be these this, this, the next months and maybe years are going to be are going to be difficult. But you have to go back to the Cold War. We were patient during the Cold War. We you know we didn't go nuts, and we won. 
Right. Uh, so far, 2.3 million uh, people have left that country. More would if they could, uh, if they open up a humanitarian corridor. But I'll tell you what, any thought of decapitating the government, putting in their own in there, that won't last today. There's not one. They, they would, this guy is legitimately elected by between 60 and 70 percent of the vote, and he's done nothing but increase his profile. I think he's, I think he's probably the most uh, lauded person in the, in the world right now. But I want to go over the it's, Russian. To, to it's right, great to have a hero. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. don't you think? It's great to it's have. Fantastic. I, yeah, it's good. So I, the, the Russian demand stand is this, we're to believe it. Cease military action, constitutional neutrality from Ukraine. So they have to, Ukraine has to stop attacking the Russians, okay? Constitutional neutrality, so they can't join the EU and NATO. Recognize Russia's sovereignty over Crimea. Recognize the separatist republics. And um, demilitarization. So where is it, uh, how much of that is a non-starter? Uh, parts of it are for sure not sort of the most important thing about that new list of demands to me, Brian, is that it's evolved from what the original list was. So like since the war began, Russia is easing its demands because it's not succeeding on the battlefield and they're going to have to ease them some more. Uh, but, you know, the only thing I would view as as modestly hopeful while we watch these horrible scenes of hospitals getting bombed is that the Russians are are softening their demands because they know they're in trouble. Uh, David, I got to ask you too, you traveled with uh, General Milley, I guess, uh, Chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. So you had a chance to go and see him interact. You wrote a column on it, brought you inside up close and personal. Uh, tell me about his demeanor. Tell me about the guy you knew and uh, tell me about it compared to the guy you, you traveled with. Well, so uh, General Milley's kind of a, a classic uh, battlefield commander. He, you know, he's a he's a barrel chested guy. Uh, you know, he he's gruff. He, you know, he, he drops the f bomb more than <laughs> a lot of people do. You know, he's just he's you know he's very very straightforward. He loves being with with troops. Uh, he he loves to kind of. Uh, you know, I could liken it to the trash talk on a sports team. You know, you go into a, a command center and he'll just say, you know, uh, Johnson, tell me about Jones. Jones ain't good. What kind of officer is he? Uh, Jones, uh, what, what kind of sergeant is right. Johnson? He's back and forth. He'll, he'll decide to go, you know, conduct uh, on-the-fly inspections, these little prefab hooches that the guys sleep in. They're, okay, everybody's hooch is a mess, but here's a four-star general who's chasing you into your, into your you know, the bed isn't made. So, you know, he likes stuff like that. He, he, um, he, he combines that quality of a commander with, uh, you know, a very intellectual sense of what war is. I mean, he's, he, he has, as I wrote, he, he's been under fire probably more than any chairman in modern times. I mean, really under fire. It's intense battles. And, um, and, and he thinks about war in, in great detail. He's, he's read every battle history I know. And, you know, people like you and me who, you know, are interested in military history, uh, you know, he has establishes a, a connection uh, I, he, he what he's done in this case i think is to use the intelligence that we were collecting which is unbelievable Any, anybody ever wonders geez, right. does the cia do they really get any good stuff yeah they do and so he pulled all that stuff together uh, into a map that he t- apparently takes everywhere with him takes to the white house wherever he goes and um said Folks, this is what happening. This is happening. Look at the map. It's like any you know. Think of any general in history. He's 
he's got right. hunched over a map with people around him, and they're looking at the map and they're pointing. So that's what's been happening since October in a series of meetings so do you, you know, with Europeans. Yeah. I just want just quick thing on, on Afghanistan, biggest military disaster in my lifetime, maybe ever. Um, Millie was a part of that. If we don't leave so uh, so disastrously, do you believe that the Russians still go into Ukraine? So I like you. I think Afghanistan was a disaster. You know, Milley didn't want to do what Biden did. Uh, he opposed it, argued against it. Um, they went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, you know, I, I think there's just nothing else to say but that it was a disaster. And I think you know, Milley and, and the other commanders need to own it. And um, it did present a picture of American disorganization, a weakness that the world saw. And uh, you know. I think I think there were a lot of factors in Putin's mind that led him to to do the Ukraine invasion, but that's got to have been one of them. Always great to talk to you, David. It's always an education. Love your columns and love this one with Millie. It's uh, be interesting to get the personal side. David Ignatius, Thanks, Washington Post. Thank you. Same here. Uh, when we come back, I'll try to squeeze in as many calls as possible, but I went long because I wanted to get you as much information as possible. Don't move. Don't move. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is Brian Kilmeade Show. We're looking at some video of European, I believe it's in Russian hands. Uh, now, that's just a small town outside of Kiev, uh, but it matters. Brian, in Lo- listening on Long Island on 1039. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Uh, first, I've never been so proud to have Ukrainian heritage. My grandma, my grandma. Grandmother was should be. Um, I, I wanted to say that, uh, that you know I know they got the hands full over there, um, but bullies need to be punched in the nose. And I, I wish that they would think about maybe sending small you know commando teams or whatever. You know, I mean, I'm sure they have people thinking about this stuff. I just want to throw it out in the universe, man. Get some get some people to go across the border into Russia, and 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 hit them where it hurts. Make make them understand that that it can come to them because. As long as they, they, they could just play in Ukraine and blow people up, it, it doesn't hurt them at all. I mean, the, the sanctions, I guess, are good and everything, but, but they, they, I just think they need to be punched in the face. Right. Well, put it this way. President Zelensky running a platform of having friendlier relations with Russia. Does that sound familiar? And they looked at it as weakness, hence the invasion. They said, well, this comedian doesn't know anything about anything. He knows about the Russian culture, was looking to start fresh, but now he's in a war. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Senator Joni Ernst is going to be with us in a matter of moments. Brett Baer at the bottom of the hour. We're following all the breaking news in and around this war with the Ukraine, as well as peace talks in Turkey, what they produced and what they didn't produce. As uh, well, it's rather predictable, but it's uh, agonizing because, you know, there's going to be more pain and suffering on the side of the Ukrainians, even though they're fighting valiantly. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. New studies show an alarming drop in reading skills in young students throughout COVID. The studies show one-third of school kids are behind on reading benchmarks nationwide. According to Amplify, kindergartners at the highest risk for not learning to read rose 8% during the pandemic. COVID-19 slips into our past. This time, it's time to uh, evaluate our actions. As warned by so many, the sacrifices made from massive masking to vaccinations to shut down, virtually useless. Well, the damage done, evident. The continued masking of toddlers is flat-out cru- flat cruelty. Number two. We expect to see a high headline uh, in head, headline inflation in tomorrow's February inflation data. A key reason, as you touched on, are energy prices. We've seen the price of gas increase, as I noted, 75 cents since the beginning of the year as Putin built up his military near Ukraine. Blame Putin. Yep, for the war. Yep, for the historical high gas prices and inflation. No, I'm not going to buy that. Are you? Number one. They want us to feel like animals because they blocked our cities because they don't want our our people to get some food, water. Yesterday, for example, children. I don't know if you, if you know the children in Mariupol was mm-hmm. uh, the child was dead. Yeah, that is President Zelensky, of course, the fight. The magnitude of violence ramps up and the Russian brutality hits new lows, blowing up a Maripol hospital and killing sick kids and pregnant women. It's more important than ever that Ukraine holds on and in doing so wins. With me right now, Senator Joni Ernst uh, of Iowa. Welcome back, Senator. Uh, thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're on the Armed Services Committee, so you know what's going on. Uh, first off, your assessment of how the Ukrainians are fighting. Well, this hits hard. Um, I did spend some time in Ukraine in 1989 when they were still under Soviet control, and they wanted freedom then. Uh, They gained their freedom, and now we see that under threat now. Um, What Vladimir Putin didn't anticipate was that there would be a tremendous surge against his Russian forces. So the Ukrainians are hanging on with every last breath, as you have seen, Brian. And, And what we need to be doing as a Americans is making sure that we are bolstering their Ukrainian defense forces as best we can and as timely as we can, as well as using every other tool at our disposal, strangling out the line of funding that is uh, providing this for this Russian war machine. So we are here for the Ukrainian people, but this administration has just got to step it up. Yeah, you said you want to you put together uh, a bill. You're looking for more lethal aid. Yes, absolutely. And I am pushing a bill that would allow um, our government to transfer unused aircraft, weapons, equipment, additional defense support and capabilities that we have sitting in warehouses around the world to the Ukrainians so they can fight back against this Russian aggression. Again, it's stuff that we don't use. It is uh, airplanes that we have put into the boneyard that we could use to backfill our allies is the transfer MiGs to the Ukrainians. These are common sense moves. We should be doing it. We should have done it yesterday, the week before, but instead the Biden administration is dragging their feet. So these MiGs are not going to get transferred. John Kirby on the reason why. Cut four. What's the 
difference in providing javelins and stingers to the Ukrainians versus MiGs or fighter jets? Why is that more provocative from an intelligence perspective? Why is that seen as more provocative? Um, it seems like you're splitting hairs there. No, there's no splitting hairs, Jen. I think uh, we, we take seriously the intelligence community's assessments um, and their views uh, based on the information that uh, that they have available to them. Um, and it's their assessment, one in which the, the secretary uh, concurs that uh, that the transfer of combat aircraft right now could be mistaken uh, by Mr. Putin and the Russians as an escalatory step. And the intelligence committee says that they don't need any. They have their own planes. What do you think about that? I think that's absolutely wrong. Um, again, we should be providing them absolutely every tool to, to advance to superiority in this fight. What we are doing is, is hampering them. Um, I can't believe, I don't believe this administration. When they talk about the intelligence, intelligence community and how they're assessing the information coming from the intelligence community, for heaven's sakes, go back and look at Afghanistan. Take a look at the Russian threat that has been out there for months and months and months, and yet this administration did absolutely nothing to help our Ukrainian partners. Um, so they will use one excuse after another to drag their feet on assisting the Ukrainians. But I think it is absolutely the right thing to do. Even if they don't need those MiGs, make them available, because in the case that they do need them, then they can quickly be moved into defense of Ukraine. Um, we should array an entire um, toolbox for them to choose from. You know, let's make sure that they can be successful. This president doesn't seem to understand that. What I don't understand is them letting, allowing the Russians to, I guess, use a visa. Lavrov got a special exemption to go to uh, recut this Iranian missile, this nuclear program deal. And now it looks like we're in an ancillary room. We can't even sit in the same room and we're asking Russia to cut a deal with their ally. It makes no sense. It is beyond ludicrous, Brian. Uh, the Biden administration is working with Russia and China to negotiate this nuclear deal with Iran, who is still the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. And they have continued to enrich uranium. Iran has. They did this under the Obama-Biden nuclear agreement. And so what we need to do is make sure that we're unleashing American energy production. We can do that today. But instead, this administration would rather bring Iran back into the market, lift its sanctions on its oil, and enable some of the world's most deadly terrorists. What President Biden needs to do is walk away. Don't walk away slowly. Run. Um, so let's not enter into this agreement. For whatever reason, President Biden seems to be enabling all of our near-peer adversaries, all of these violent extremist groups around the world. We have got to stop it. Well, I, it do, I hope it does stop. But guess why it might stop? Because Lavrov is protesting. He says, you're going to ask me to do this? Release some of the sanctions on him and other higher-ups because we've, we sanctioned them individually. We froze a lot of their accounts. Uh, about four more oligarchs were frozen, had their accounts and their stuff about to be seized uh, by the U.K., so he wants he wants a favor before he does us a favor, which isn't a favor because he's going to cut a nuclear deal <laughs> that doesn't allow snap inspections, doesn't allow us to really visualize what kind of nuclear program they'll have and allow them to use some of that money to finance terror. 
You bet, Brian. You spelled it out perfectly. I couldn't have done it better myself. Um, so there, there we go. We'll see what happens. Hope nothing. Also, when it comes to Venezuela, we don't have relations with the Maduro government. How are we able to do that? We said they were an illegitimate government, and we recognized Guaido. Right, exactly. And so, again, I, I just really don't understand this president's foreign policy. Um, we continue to enable bad actors instead of relying on strong partners and allies. You know, we should be that shining light around the globe. We should be producing the energy that we need right here at home and providing for our other friends and allies. Um, we need to strengthen these good relationships not lean on terrorists, not lean on governments that we don't recognize, not lean on near-peer adversaries for what we need. There is a better way of doing this, and I am not, again, I don't understand why President Biden is doing what he's doing. Whoever is advising him must not believe in the strength of America. I believe in the strength of America. I believe that we should be leading in these areas, not following as President Biden is doing. So let's listen to Jen Psaki and company is now blaming Vladimir Putin for the rise of inflation. Now it's 7.9 percent. It was 2 percent when they took over, maybe even less. And they're blaming the, the Vladimir Putin for the rise in yeah, the, the pay, how much you're paying at the pump. Mm-hmm. Listen to this exchange, Cut 21. Why did you guys decide to rebrand the rise in gas prices as the hashtag Putin price hike? I mean, if you want to use that on Fox, I welcome that. But oh, I think it'll get a lot of airtime because we have heard the president warn for months the gas prices were rising because of the supply chain and because of post-pandemic demand. If you guys knew for months that this was going to be the hashtag Putin price hike, why are we just hearing that now? Well, Peter, if we go back to six months ago, I don't think anybody was predicting we would be exactly where we are as it relates to Russia and Ukraine. As you know that events in the world, including the invasion by Russia of a foreign country, does uh, prompt uh, instability and volatility in the global oil market. Well, by the way, uh, Senator, talking to Senator Joni Ernst, we all knew because he told they told us this was going to happen. They told us it was evident. We watched the buildup. So you can't act like we were surprised by this. Exactly. No one is surprised by this. But let let me remind your audience that prices started going up from day one, prices at the pump, from day one of President Biden's administration. He stopped the Keystone XL pipeline. He ratcheted down on American energy production, and he made us much more reliant upon our adversaries like Russia for our oil. Um, So instead of releasing American energy independence, easing up on the permitting processes, allowing our companies here within the United States to produce more, um, he turns to folks like Venezuela uh, to to produce more oil or purchase more oil. So this is a big issue for my constituents, every person that's filling up at the pump across the United States, and it's not just because of Russia. It's exacerbating it, but it is not 
because of Russia. It is because of the deranged climate policy that right. we see coming from President Biden and his administration. Absolutely. In fact, what are they do, and they're doing the same thing with defund the police. Now, President Biden never said defund the police, but he's talked about redirecting, and he never pushed back on those wackos in his uh, party. Right. They keep saying it over and over again, like Cory Bush said it two weeks ago. We know everybody in the squad absolutely believes that. Now Joe Biden's saying, I'm not for, uh, I'm not against fossil fuels. The problem is, he is. Remember this when he was running, cut 22. They have to set sort of guide rails down now. So between the years 2021 and 2030, it's irreversible, the path we've set ourselves on. One of which is doing away with any subsidies for fossil fuels. And by the way, when they don't, when they're deliberate, put them in jail. Oh, yeah, that sounds like he's really mm-hmm. open to the fossil fuel industry, doesn't it? Oh, my gosh. And we heard in his uh, statement the other day, which I am glad that he finally took executive action, <clears throat> excuse me, to ban Russian oil. I think that's great. It's, you know, a day late and a dollar short, but at least he did it. But what he didn't say was, let's increase our own uh, energy production. Instead, he said, wouldn't it be great if every American could have an electric vehicle? Hello, Mr. President, um, shifting from oil from Russia and then relying upon China and their production of batteries and the minerals necessary for electric vehicles. Never mind, we don't even have the kind of infrastructure necessary for every American to have an EV, nor do my constituents in Iowa have the dollars in their pocket to purchase an excessively expensive uh, EV. So, again, the foreign policy, even the domestic policy coming from this president is so outrageous. He is so out of touch with everyday America and what's going on in our households. He has no clue and it's pushing us into these really crazy policy decisions. So in in Iowa famously, where you're from, uh, they have a big farming community and how much diesel is right now. How will that affect the farmers? I mean, are some going to choose not to grow grow this season? Well, they will have to. I mean, their livelihoods depend on it. And so we will see farmers out there planting this spring. Many of them are readying their operations right now. Um, And we will see prices exacerbated by the situation in Russia, but also the inflation that we are seeing because of his policies that started, again, day one when he came into office. The supply chain issues, which he has refused to really dig into and, you know, provide solutions for, um, all of that is contributing to higher costs. So we hope that we can get higher prices for our commodities like corn and soybeans, but understanding that the, the costs of inputs for our farmers are far exceeding what we've seen in the past. So we're hoping for those break-even points. And if we don't, it's going to be a very, very hard year in order to, you know, continue to, to feel our world. So, you know, uh, all of these policies policies put out by Biden, they impact every single aspect of our daily lives. I don't care whether you're in the rural areas, in the urban areas, we are seeing failure upon failure within this administration, you know, and running away to Delaware every weekend is not helping either. We have a lot of crises going on around the world. Um, You know, matter of fact, this administration, 
Taliban just released another several billion dollars to the Taliban and the Haqqani terrorist network. Um, this, it's crazy Senator, what the decisions they are making, Brian. We've got to do better. Yeah, Senator Joni Ernst, you got a new bill out to provide more lethal aid uh, to the Ukrainians, so let's get that done. Senator, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, Brian. Hey, when we come back, one 866 We need your opinion. we got everything else except that. Don't move. Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, let's go right to the phones right now. Try to get as many calls as possible. Walker's listening to WABC in Jersey City. Hey, Walker. Hey, Brian. Um, you know, I, 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 I want to talk about this this, uh, this electric car business. Uh, you know, it's, it's inconvenient enough now to have an electric car because you, you really don't have a whole lot of places to charge them. Right. And uh, to charge it at home... Uh, you know, takes forever. But, you know, if you think about the future, like 20 years from now, when they have yeah. a lot of cars, uh, and then you think about brownouts in the summertime and how that's going to affect your ability to move based on uh, 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 electric demand in the summertime for air conditioning. Absolutely. Uh, there's downside to it, and I hear most of these plants are powered by coal. I don't think they like that. Nico, listening on Long Island. I'm sorry, Nico. Hold that thought. Uh, we're going to get back to you in a second. When we come back, Brett Baer joins us, and then I will go back to the calls from Georgia, back to the Bronx, over to Long Island. We'll be good. We're getting to all of you, I promise. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're tracking what's happened over in the Ukraine. It's another busy day over there. Don't move. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A barrel of oil from Iran or Venezuela or Russia or anywhere else is no less damaging to the climate than a barrel of oil from America. The only difference between a barrel of oil from America and those places is we get the money and we get the jobs. But the second point you've raised is, you know, this Iran deal would do nothing for oil. The markets have already priced in an expectation that a deal is going to happen. So that, that that discount's already in there for the most part. And Venezuela barely produces any oil. This is not Venezuela from 15 years ago. This is a corrupt, decrepit industry that produces less than 700,000 barrels of oil a day. Almost all of it goes to China because they pay the loans they owe to China. They have to pay it with oil. And 10% of it, the remainder, goes to Cuba for free in exchange for fake doctors. So that they don't have any oil to send us, even if they wanted to. And they can't ramp up production because their machines are outdated, their engineers have left the country, and their industry has become a, a decrepit mess run by incompetence. It's become a personal piggy bank for a narco dictator in Venezuela uh, who is you know, very close to Iran and Russia and China. But not the United States. Man, uh, he knows what he's talking about. Senator Marco Rubio, when asked why the administration is going over to Iran and Venezuela to make up for the lost oil that we're no longer getting from Russia, and he had the answer. And maybe he's right, and maybe they realize that because that's why they called Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and they did not get a return call. Why? 
because both those nations are angry that we're reengaging Iran and look like we're going to give them another bad deal that allows their oil to get back in the market, which gives uh, those sanctions get relieved. And they take that money and a lot of it goes to funding their terrorist organizations, creating havoc in the Middle East. So they're not going to bail us out because Joe Biden poisoned that well. We'll see what happens. With me right now is Brett Baer with all these moving parts, trying to get to the bottom of what's happening in Ukraine as well as Russia. Brett, welcome back. Hey, Brian. So we got a couple of things. Are you thinking that the, pres- the president's big push now to, to say it's Vladimir Putin's fault for high inflation and high gas prices is going to resonate with the American people? No. I mean, anybody who's been following anything, it it, it wouldn't. I mean, uh, most people understand that gas prices and inflation were going up well before uh, the Russians even got to that border, let alone invaded Ukraine. So, you know, you have to give it to the White House to look at the shiny thing and say this is Putin's price hike and try to label it. And the president's now said it three or four times because they realize the the danger in $5, $6-gallon gas and what that means. Um, I, I'm struck by Senator Rubio's characterization of Venezuela and how little we could get out of that rock um, as far as yeah. oil or benefit. And this is somebody who knows. I mean, he knows the, the region and he knows Venezuela in particular. You mentioned the Uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE, they're not only upset about the Iran deal and the prospect of of Iran getting stronger in the the region, but they're also – upset about the inaction and and not looking at what was happening with the attacks on the UAE, the drone attacks from the Houthis, who are tied to Iran. Uh, they're not – they don't acknowledge um, the attacks that the Houthis have, have launched on Riyadh because in this administration, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are not seen as in the same light as the last administration. And they look more, and you know, in part rightfully so, about the atrocities that happened with Khashoggi and, and other uh, negative aspects of Saudi uh, life in the past. But in the geopolitical sense, they're trying to shift the focus back again to what the Obama administration wanted, which was an Iran that is the center of the Middle East. And to do that, to get that deal through, uh, you're going to have to make some concessions that even the Russian negotiator said was a really good deal for China, Russia, and Iran. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, it's like anything in life. If you're going to alienate somebody, know there's going to be ramifications on it. When they first came in, they looked at Saudi Arabia as an evil empire. Okay, fine. Uh, they do a lot of things wrong. But also, without them, we probably wouldn't have won the Cold War. For a lot of presidents, they were extremely loyal. We're never going to approve of their way of government. And if you don't like the way they're fighting in Yemen— Okay, ham-handed, lack of skill, lack of surgical strikes, I get it. But just so you know, when you no longer back Saudi Arabia, you're backing Iran because those Houthi rebels, Houthi rebels are allied with Iran. So that gives Iran influence at a nation right on their doorstep. No one seems to be going that last mile, but it angers people. And the lack of progress on the Abraham Accords, I, I venture to guess it's because President Trump was doing it that they don't want to even pursue it now. They don't even call it the Abraham Accords. They don't even call it that name. And so, you know, they they don't want to go down that road, even though it was seeing major benefits. And so there is a real frustration by the UAE and Saudi Arabia to the point where they're going to cozy up to other 
big actors. Uh, and so you're now seeing this emergency effort by the administration to say that maybe there'll be a trip by President Biden to Riyadh to reestablish and all of this stuff. Well, maybe start by getting them to answer the phone. <laughs> the, the administration denies that that happened, but the Wall Street Journal stays by that from uh, multiple sources that uh, there was not a a conversation that had, was had. So we understand uh, no no progress. I watched Sky TV's broadcast Love It Live uh, through the translation. Doesn't look like any progress with Lavrov and his counterpart with the Ukraine. And not really, they weren't able to talk substantively any peace. They're demanding that they recognize the Donbass region as as independent, Crimea as part of Russia, demilitarize and don't join NATO or the EU. And that seems to be something that uh, the Ukrainians don't want to agree with. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a non-starter. And you have Lavrov saying in the same breath that Russia is not attacking Ukraine. Right. Russia has launched 700 plus missiles. And and these these images are obviously horrific and we're seeing them. It's not like we're not seeing them. They are saying that this is all the the latest was that the one of the women that the pictures went around the world uh, bleeding from the maternity children's hospital that was hit was an actor. They said, <laughs> and that this is a deep fake video. They said the Russians, Russians. You know, it, you can't do that and be believable. I mean, it's like Baghdad Bob from when he was saying that the U.S. is not coming into Baghdad and the tanks were rolling right behind him uh, when Iraq was happening. So uh, it's tough to see the chasm uh, fixed between the two sides uh, if that continues. So you just wonder, too, with all this death and destruction on everybody's screen, what are the what is the the United States and NATO's options besides arming the best we can with with weapons that we pretty much know they're going to be the javelins and they're going to be the stinger missiles and and small arms and helmets and hopefully some supplies. Is there anything else on the table that that you found intriguing, Brett, with all your Pentagon contacts that used to be your beat? Yeah. I mean, listen, they have determined that the MiGs is an escalation, which is interesting because, um, you know, 17,000, 20,000 stingers and javelins do a lot of damage. And it's not like Putin doesn't know they're coming in. Uh, they are. In fact, the Russians probably at some point are going to try to stop that supply line from, from different places in NATO countries. And yeah, so I, I think... There will be an effort as these images come out to step up whatever we do. But how that happens, uh, the one thing that hasn't been in there is S-300 surface-to-air missile uh, batteries uh, that are Russian, but they are a part of a number of NATO countries in the region. So there may be talks about some of those NATO countries to get those S-300s into Ukraine. Well, that would be, if that is an escalatory, I, I mean, I'm all for it, but if that is an escalatory, if that, then the MiGs are an escalatory because they're offensive. Some people just say, if you could put the Patriots in 48 hours, the Patriot missiles in 48 hours in Poland, could you at least do that in, in uh, Kiev? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I don't know where the line is, and it's tough for them to talk about it because they've now said that the MiGs are the the line. But what about Patriot missiles? There are batteries going in to uh, Poland along the, the border there. Um, and so is it because it's a U.S. Uh, 
item? I don't know. The javelins and the stingers are too. It it doesn't make sense. And I think that there's, you know, and when you send Vice President Harris to Poland and don't arm her with something deliverable, I mean, they held this news conference today. There was nothing that she came with that was deliverable other than we're going to work together and be on the same page. When asked about the MIG controversy, they didn't talk about it. And, um, you know, I was expecting some big moment, like she was going to go meet Zelensky yeah. in, in Ukraine. I don't think that's happening. Well, I tell I you what, that, yeah, the one thing I did see is that she said we, we, they're giving him $50 billion. They walked back and said, I mean, $50 million, uh, right. into Ukraine. So that's direct aid. But it's a little bit of a difference between, uh, according to reports, I wouldn't, I, I don't have either in my account, $50 million or $50 billion. That's a big mistake, but I guess it's not that that harmful. It's not like we had to go to the ATM and take it out and then put it back again. But we'll, I, I guess at one point we're going to have to be a little bit bolder. I want you to hear what General Jack Keane said uh, on your Our Tribal Jesse Waters show, Cut 11. <laughs> I'm getting to think that Putin is really getting inside the head of some of our leaders in the administration here. I mean, the pattern has been, it's been pretty profound, but I thought we were getting out of it. And by that, I mean, remember, back in March, they show up on the border of Ukraine, 70,000. A shipment is due to leave that month for Ukraine. Actually, it's President Trump's shipment. The Biden administration's in power for 90 days. What do we do? We delay it till August. They show up again in the fall after the Afghanistan debacle on Ukraine's border with 150,000. Another shipment is due to go. What do we do? We delay it. And the reason for both of those delays is the fear that we will provoke them into attacking into Ukraine. And we have similar issues. We didn't give them the stingers, Jesse, until last week. Other NATO countries have been giving us them stingers for months. And I believe, unstated reason, we didn't want to provoke them. So that's a general. He's not really known for hyper, uh, have uh, a lot of hyperbole. No, I agree. And he's. It feels like he's right. It feels like there is this Putin fear. And at some point, you have to look at the military and what's happening on the ground. And you have to look at the the lack of success that the Russian military has had and the ham-handedness in which they're attacking these cities with just, just devastating them. And at at one point you have to say as nato wh- where is our line and that's what zelensky's been making that case all along yes there is a threat of world war 3 and we have to be very very careful about that but um giving the difference between stinger missiles javelin missiles and patriot missiles or thad uh defense systems um you know i, I think there's it's kind of a lot of nuance lost on people following it. Uh, Brett, have you have you selected your panel? I have selected the panel, and it will be good. Uh, but more importantly, this intel hearing up on Capitol Hill, right now, Senate yeah. intel, it's it's really chock full of a lot of info, and uh, more so than the other one the other day. Uh, specifics about you know how the Russians are not doing certain things; they don't have control of the airspace. So we're going to go into that hearing and some of the details, and then I have the uh, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Mark Warner. Great. Uh, I saw Tom Cotton getting into it. Uh, He's always very well prepared for this stuff. So you'll have some of those clips, I imagine. But I'm not going to tell you how to edit your show, but you do call. A lot of people don't know. You call me at 550. 
and you'll just say, to check in. Right. What and do I, you think about this, Brian? And a lot of times you just got to get voicemail because I am busy. <laughs> right? you've, and, got, you've got like seven shows. Right. Exactly. I'm preparing for something. Um, <laughs> I, you know, Brett, you're always free to join me on Saturday night. I'm going to be live 8 and 11. Wow. Well, I'll be live Fox News Sunday. So how about that? Oh, good. Oh, do you know who you haven't yet? Working on it. That's, but, what, um, that's exactly what Chris Wallace used to say. <laughs> yeah, Jack Keen's going to join me on the board in person. Nice. So that's that's good. And uh, I'm going to have two big time senators and maybe a world leader. We're working on all things. When, how do you do? You prepare differently for that show than any other show? I do a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, I prepare for interviews on special report, and but for that show, it seems like I I do do a little bit more in preparation for some reason. Um, yeah, and also uh, your William Barr interview was fantastic both nights. Oh, thanks, man. All right. Go go get him, Brett. All right, you too. All right, see we're ya. watching you Sunday. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. I'm going to finish up with your calls. I see you up there. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. This weekend, check out Brian's new show on Fox News Channel. Yeah, Brian Kilmeade. He's got a new show on Saturdays because apparently he's cheaper than infomercials for nonstick pans. That is not true. Chill out, Gutfeld. That really hurts. One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. More of Brian coming up. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. For the outnumbered aspect that Russia has, you know, with material, technology, and true power, why you would want to then take that into a house-to-house situation where it nullifies all that technology. Insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan wanted an urban fight with Americans because it neutralizes technology, completely neuters it. So home field advantage is going to go to the defender. You put a machine gun behind a door, I don't care if you're SEAL Team 6 or the Marvel Avengers, Brian, you're going to get shot. So I, to me, this, uh, this makes no sense from a tactical level why, the, why Putin would why he want to attempt this. And that's why we could be heading towards house-to-house. We could be heading towards urban fighting. And David Bellavia is somebody who wrote the book House-to-House. It's going to be a movie. And uh, when you read the book, it's so compelling and so real. But that's why he got the Congressional Medal of Honor. So um, because he does have that great valor and he knows how tough it is. And you need they say if you're defending or offending. So if you're on the offense, you need to outnumber the enemy five to one. And the Russians might have the numbers, but they certainly don't have the experience. And they're losing almost every fight head to head. They're just good at blanket bombing, so-called carpet bombing. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. All right. When asked the top reason why people quit their jobs, the number one, pay too low. Number two, no advancement opportunities. That's tied in first. Number three, at 57% felt disrespected. 48% child care. That is a surprise to me. Not enough flexibility. That's 45%. Benefits weren't good. 43%. So COVID-19 requirements, just 18%. Uh, the low pay was the top reason. People also quit. Because they're disrespected. 78% of those who quit a job say they are still employed, uh, according to uh, Pew's self-administered uh, web, web survey. Any surprises there? Um, I don't know. The fact that you were surprised about the child care, you know, given the pandemic and all the kids homeschooled, I'm shocked it's only 48%. Right. I just didn't think that would use more of a thing now. True. But um, uh, who quit the job in 2021? So that would be COVID. Next. 
America, bunch of nice people. Why don't we realize that? Because we could get too caught up in the loud voices that pay that everyone pays attention to. And here's some proof of it. Most people don't tweet. So if you see some anger online, it's not the people you know. 72% of Americans help strangers. 42% of us volunteer. We're the number one country for giving uh, once they survey 1.3 million people in 125 countries. Last week, for example, um, or last year, we were number one by a wide margin. Why it matters? This cuts against religion, region, and age. 60% of Americans giving money last year is pretty impressive. Facebook says birthday fundraisers bring in hundreds of millions of dollars. Top beneficiaries, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. Be happy. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.